Hello and welcome to Cinemakers, Steven Soderbergh. This is episode one, Sex, Lies, and Videotape from 1989. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Tobin Addington. Ooh, look at that. I was just waiting for you to do it because it's the first time we've ever yeah. really had like a co-host, like an official co-host. I want to see what happened. We did it. How are you, Tobin? I'm great, guys. How are you? Good. So this is a new project we're doing. I have no idea how this is going to turn out. <laughs> we currently have 180 episodes of this scheduled, so I hope it's good. <laughs> Otherwise, we might have to cut things short very soon. But what the three of us are doing right now is we're going through all the films and stuff of Steven Soderbergh. He did a few things before Sex, Lies, and Videotape, today's movie, but this is the first movie he did, and I feel like we'll sort of feel our way through a lot of this, but I feel like starting with a movie as opposed to like shorts or whatever is sort of a good entry point into any director, especially when it's a film that you win the Palme d'Or for and is as acclaimed and sort of successful and admired and beloved as this one. Yeah, I think the movies are what will be our major focus here throughout the podcast, but we will sort of veer off the path from time to time into stuff maybe he just wrote or produced television. You know, he got into that after he retired. So, yeah, I agree. Like, this is this will be a little different, but we'll see how it goes. I think it'll go well, so I'm excited. I definitely took way less notes for this than I would for an actor podcast movie because we're not really concerning ourselves with really what the movie's about as I don't know what we're doing really we're going to find out <laughs> but we're not going to like follow, we're not following an actor we're following a director and so we're doing mostly modern directors people who are still working today that's kind of the 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 link that everybody needs first we have 12 planned they're all surprises past Soderbergh but they're all modern directors still working today and unless you're like a Tarantino who pops himself into his movies from time to time for the most part I don't think these these directors are really going to be in their films so we're not analyzing that part of it it's more about camera work and styles and I mean for in this case especially like he wrote the script so there's stuff to talk about there too yeah, and Soderbergh is a special case because as his career goes along, he takes over more and more of the main duties of the movie. You know, by by the movies he's making in the in the late mid to late two thousands, he's the chief editor and he's the cinematographer, right? He's the cameraman as well as the director and and sometimes still the writer. If this if we're, if we're calling this cinemakers, he's he is definitely uh, you know maker of cinema, and I think his you will see his sort of fingerprints all over all these projects. We will, by the way, get at least one performance from him. He, he does have a role in his movie Schizopolis, which is coming up here in a little while. Uh, so we will, we'll, see, oh. we'll see him at least once. But yeah, you're right. He's most, mostly behind the camera. What else is really cool about him is that you know, he started out as this sort of indie sensation. Um, you know, even he's pre-Tarantino. And so what I really think is interesting about his career in particular is he's really been able to maintain a foot in two worlds, right? Like he has very respected independent work that he'll make mm-hmm. throughout his entire career. And then he'll do like these awesome major Hollywood type movies, you know, not necessarily big blockbusters, but major studio films, right? Ocean's Eleven, lots of Clooney work, uh, and in a, you know, for and Clooney's like a huge star. Uh, so I think that's really interesting too, is that he's really able to maintain that balance, and I don't feel like his quality really falters all that much. And I feel like here, here and there, we'll get into it down the line. You know, you might see fatigue set in and at some times or, you know, just trying to find new and interesting ways to do things that may or may not work. But 
I do like that we're starting with him because he straddles you know both worlds so well. We've also got 33 episodes as of now planned for him, which is I don't know double the biggest the the next biggest one. So we're really diving in headfirst with this, trying to figure out what we're doing. He's made a lot of like like Mike was saying, he's made a lot of really big movies, but also really small movies that I've never heard of, and I've only seen probably about a third of what he's done so a lot of this is new to me i mean i'd seen this once ago once like years ago but most of what's coming up especially in the near future in like the 90s and maybe early 2000s maybe up until like oceans 11 ish i don't really know i'm so thrilled that we're that we're doing him soderbergh is one of my all-time favorite directors certainly among among living directors and i think and i think that he you know as as you guys are saying you could say he's sort of all over the map in in the sense that he's moving back and forth between almost sort of avant-garde indie movies at times it's not quite fair to say that but some some movies that that are that are um take a lot of chances narratively and in terms of the storyline and who the characters are and how they look and then and then he'll go off and he'll make you know a hundred million dollar um hollywood movie and and so but even when he's doing those big movies he's pretty inventive with the way that he that he does them and and the last thing i'll say is he's been very open over the course of his career to sort of describe what that process has been like you know he, he's very very open about his movies that that he that that he thinks don't work and and ones that he's more proud of and why and how he sort of changed his career over time quite consciously to to try and s- sort of keep himself fresh um, and I think that'll that'll be a useful roadmap for us as we as we follow his career. So I think before we dive into this movie, I think this might be I don't know if it's gonna be helpful. Helpful might not be the right word, but helpful to sort of see who this guy is and what he is known for. I looked on IMDb at his trivia and his trademarks and such. A few things that I noticed that are of uh, note for one reason or another. Number one, he uses ambient music scores by Cliff Martinez, including in this movie. Uh, Cliff Martinez, formerly of the Chili Peppers, I think, right? Early in his career, he was known as a drummer, notably with the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Because okay, cool. he now works a lot with Refn, Nicholas Winding Refn, and he did Drive, and he did the Neon Demon, and when I saw the Neon Demon screening in Texas, they were both there. And so I, I never knew that he was of the Chili Peppers at one point, but I guess that's sort of partially what he's known for. Anyway, he's involved here. Soderbergh often casts Don Cheadle, George Clooney, Matt Damon, Topher Grace, Louis Guzman, Eddie Jameson, Catherine Zeta-Jones, and Julie Roberts. Basically, all of his Ocean's Eleven people <laughs> are in a lot of his movies. None of them are in this. Uh, like Tobin said, he uses he's, he's a, a man of many hats. Uh, he often sometimes acts as his own cinematographer under the pseudonym Peter Andrews. So there, he had an actual cinematographer for this because this was his first film, but he later would go on to do a lot of other things. I said I mentioned earlier that this film won the Palme d'Or at the 1989 Cannes Film Fest. He was the youngest winner ever. He was only 26 when that happened. Bastard. So that's kind of cool. Bastard. <laughs> I know. Well, we're all older. Than, I mean, I'm the youngest of the three of us, and I'm, I'm already older than that, so I've failed. <laughs> and then a year later at Sundance, he was on the dramatic jury, and apparently he was like apologetic when he unveiled Sex, Lies, and Videotape at maybe at Sundance, maybe at Con. I don't know. He thought it wasn't done. He thought it was unpolished yeah. and technically incomplete. And then this is way down the line, but one like cool thing to note is that in 2001, he became the first director in 62 years to be nominated for Best Director at the Oscars for two different films. And then he won. Both Aaron Brockovich and Traffic. Yeah, he won for Traffic. He beat himself. Back in 1938, uh, Michael Curtis was nominated for Angels with Dirty Faces and Four Daughters, but... 
Yeah. Also, oh, the other thing is that he was one of ten directors to ever have two films nominated for Best Picture in the same year, which was that same year. That's a list that also has, aside from Michael Curtis, has you know Alfred Hitchcock, Francis Ford Coppola, John Ford, and a bunch of other names. So, I mean, 2000, 2001 is a big time for him. We're a little more than a decade off, but still cool to know that like this guy was successful from the get-go and like you know in very elite, if not crazy, you know one-of-a-kind territory a little bit down the road. And came out of nowhere too. This is a this is not somebody who went to film school. This is not somebody who studied it in any kind of academic way. This is someone who is largely self-taught, just studied on his own, sort of apprenticed and, and learned on his own. And and to come out with a movie this accomplished and to launch a career that's been as sustained as this one at 26, uh, whether or not you win the the Palme d'Or at Cannes, that's that's a that's a incredibly incredibly impressive thing. Looking back on it now, I was I hadn't seen this movie in years, and I was really surprised about how much I still like it. And it's got problems and issues and you know things here and there, but for the most part, like it's still a really strong film. And it's crazy that he comes out of the gate so strong, and people take notice immediately and stuff. So uh, I know I've seen I've seen his next film, but I, I I haven't seen like the two or three after that. But I know like he kind of you know has kind of maybe a bit of a sophomore slump coming up. But history has told that he bounced back from that extremely fast and found his footing and kind of ends up blazing trails from that point. Right? Like he is even one of the early proponents of digital film and using video and um, releasing movies on the same day on demand as they are in theaters. So like bubble. Yeah. Bubble. Right. And that, but he embraces, you know, new technology, new ideas. And I, it's just really great that he is, you know, open about his process and his method and really is looking to, you know, advance the art, right? Like he, he's thinking, big term too which is cool it's like it's not just about his films but about the art form and for everyone else too so i think that's just like really great he seems to have a really good like attitude about movies you know (laughs) and i think that helps like he doesn't come across as like pretentious or anything like that or self-important or i i get the sense that he's just a guy who loves to make films and and that's how it comes across and that also is how it comes across in this film diary. Like, how would you describe it, Tobin? It's probably just like a, a film diary. Yeah. Is that summing up? Yeah, it's a diary both of, of pre-production, post-production, and production and post-production. The whole process of making this movie that he published as a diary, and in the middle of it is the script for the movie, which is which is different from the movie itself in a number of places. So you can, it's a it was a great tool for me as I was entering film school to sort of be looking at how you know the the translation from um, script to screen would go it's but it's a wonderful revealing uh, diary I think and and uh, a, a fascinating look into into both his process and then this sort of meteoric rise to fame afterwards I mean you have to keep in mind that he's like 24 probably when he's writing this and I only read the first 50 or so pages but like to your point like he writes in the in the intro I think before he actually starts the actual diary whatever that the script that's in the middle is different from the film and that's to show you like how it becomes right. different he's like I think the film's better but like you'll see like and he's really critical of himself but he's also proud of himself he also has like little notes of like here's my 10 favorite films just like writes them down like it's all hmm. it's just a guy who I think like Mike was saying loves movies and sort of wants to share that with the world or share that with the readers or whatever small world he thinks this movie is going to be. Like he, in the beginning of this diary, 
writes that he's pitching this to be like a $60,000 movie, and it winds up being a budget of $1.2 million. So he's got these like really small, hyper-indie sensibilities for it, I think probably because he doesn't know that he can make it right. this big thing with like, you know, people that, I mean, I don't know how big, and I should I should have looked this up, but like people that are like huge names today, like James Spader and like Peter Gallagher and Andy McDowell and, you know, actually established actresses and actors. And he's in this diary talking about how like he's thinking about casting people from his LSU, like, you know, his, his schoolmates, like that's who he's putting in this movie. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. You get the sense of a guy who's going to make a movie no matter what, which sort of feels like how he continued his career in some ways. Like he's going to make the movie no matter what, and he'll do it at any scale that, that it needs to be, you know, to, within reason to, to be good. And you certainly get the sense there. Andy McDowell, as, if I'm not mistaken, this is one of, if not her first role. She was a model, a model before that. It's also, I think, her best. This, this, and this is something that he continues to be very, very good at. I think um, Jennifer Lopez gives her best performance in his movie Out of Sight in a few years. Um, and, uh, you know, he famously helps um, Julia Roberts win the Oscar for Aaron Brockovich, another great performance. And then, and then James Spader, and um, Peter Gallagher were known actors, but they they weren't you know they weren't household names necessarily. They, they weren't super famous, but they were but they were well known. It would have been interesting to see his version of it with just his you know his classmates. I mean, who knows? It might have been it might have been just as good given his uh, abilities. Yeah, and I think Spader's playing a little against type here too, which actually works for me. Uh, I sort of bring with me some baggage of Spader being a bad guy to this, which I think works well for his character because he's very mysterious and we don't really know if he's good or bad or something and I think that works for it and if I'm not mistaken the other girl in this Laura Sangiacomo mm-hmm. I think this is her first major film too she might have done some television like she was in The Stand the Stephen King miniseries oh, but she went on to have Just Shoot Me right. so right. this is sort of like he, he launched like two careers here in this movie with her and Andy McDowell and he also launches the, the career of Peter Brill who's the barfly yes. who goes on to be in like Adam Sandler movies and Mighty Ducks movies and stuff, so... He's a director. He directed some of those Adam Sandler movies. So not necessarily as successful or as maybe as likable or as, you know, critically (laughs) successful, but also another career he launched. He was working on a script at the same company that was producing Soderbergh's movie. So he he talks about this in that diary. So he cast him because he's sort of hanging out with him at the office and it's like, oh, you could be the barfly put him in the movie. Oh yeah, in the commentary he mentions that they, they had a bet that whoever made their movie first would put the other person oh, in it and he said <laughs> he said he's that guy's he's since made movies but has yet put Soderbergh in one and he was kind of like joking how upset he was about that. So now I guess we got to start talking about the movie. Yeah, let's talk about the movie. So this is not a movie Tobin like my own private Idaho that you've been lying about. I want, I want some juicy gossip <laughs> yeah. that this is a movie that you've seen probably a bunch of times, right? Especially if you love Soderbergh. I've, I was thinking about that as a, in preparation for this whole series of podcasts and when, where my sort of love affair with Soderbergh began. I, I would have been, what, 11 when this movie was made so I or was released. So I, I didn't see it, obviously, at the time. But, you know, somewhere in high school, as I was sort of figuring out who filmmakers were and what they did, and I knew I wanted to make movies. Uh, and, then, and then I I remember a little bit later on, Out of Sight was the first DVD that I ever bought. When I got my first DVD player, I went to Costco and I bought Out of Sight to sort of inaugurate my DVD player. So, <laughs> so at least since you know, whenever that would have been, uh, late mid '90s, I was I was a, a Soderbergh fan. Yeah, I saw this on VHS a bunch of times in high school as a um, sort of a budding film student. 
And I remember just being, you know, it's a, it's an intimate story. It, it has the four main characters plus a few others who speak, like the Barfly and some other characters. But but basically, it's just a, a chamber piece. It's just these four characters who are three of them, or actually all four of them, sort of stuck in various ways in their lives and their interactions over this. How long does this movie take place over? Like a couple weeks? Their interactions with one another sort of unstick their lives. And I, I remember being, I think that that's a, that's a, a wonderful place for a, an indie filmmaker to start, right? Like he's, he's dealing with relationships, he's dealing with emotions, he's dealing with, uh, with sex and lies and videotape, things he can show at a modest budget. But then he sort of goes deep into that and tries to get at something about the um, about the time that certainly in, you know, in some ways feels kind of dated given the kind of technology they're using. But in other ways, feels probably close to as fresh as it as it did at the time. I like this movie a lot more this time than when I watched it a couple of years ago. I don't remember. I don't remember loving it. I don't know what changed, but it does. It just. It's so. It's such a small story, mm-hmm. and it just. It just works so quickly. This movie, Sex Life Videotape, is the IMDb describes it as a sexually repressed woman's husband is having an affair with her sister. The arrival of a visitor with a rather unusual fetish changes everything. And like you said, it's just about four people. It's really kind of ultimately about one person. Like, it's kind of only just about Andy McDowell in a way. She's the only character that really changes. From the beginning to the end, I mean, she's the one who grows and sort of comes to realize truth and sort of, I don't know if that's necessarily like as cut and dry as that, but it feels like she's the one who has the biggest journey Mm -hmm. of the four of them, right? Well, we begin with her, right? The movie starts with her. She's in therapy. Um, We don't know it's therapy at first necessarily. You get sort of voiceover and then we we figure out that she's in therapy, which is a a theme that sort of recurs. The, The whole movie is about people talking to one another and the revelations of their lives sort of in in these intimate conversations, the most extreme example of which is the conversations that people have, that women have with James Spader on videotape about their sex lives. And so the whole movie sort of built around that. And she's the one that we start with that way. And, and she then has the that initial sort of revelatory conversation. And then the one at the climax where she's having that conversation with James Spader, with him on, on tape. And, and so you're right. The movie's built. It's clearly her arc. I do think everybody changes, though. I think that uh, Peter Gallagher ends up sort of face to face with, you know, maybe the end of his career and certainly the end of his marriage and and what kind of a schmuck he's been. And um, James Spader, uh, you know, ends up, you get the impression breaking out of his sexual paralysis. I don't know if, if you guys agree with me that that's sort of where he ends up. You're right. She has the most movement in the movie for sure. Yeah. And even her and her sister make up by the end. Like, I thought that was kind of interesting too. They start fighting this whole movie and then by the end, they're friends again and everything. But yeah, I also would agree that I think it's mostly her journey, but everybody definitely goes through something and, and comes out the other end. But we do focus mostly on her. And I do think that it's mostly through like her perspective, the movie, even scenes that she's not in, I got the sense that it's how she would imagine those scenarios to go down in her head. Like when her sister is meeting with Graham uh, and she's not there, but she doesn't want her to go visit him and everything. Sure, she's not in the room, but I also get the sense like that this is how she would almost picture it. Like this isn't exactly how it might have gone down. So for the most part, I do feel like she looms over most of this. And that's good, too, I think. You know, it's interesting how Graham is sort of impotent and she is, I don't know, what would you say, maybe frigid or something? And the two of them, through each other, sort of help each other through that 
and end up together. You know, I thought that was that was nice. I, you know, it was almost like a little puzzle, like unlock there toward the end between these four characters. Like, how how is this foursome going to iron itself out? Yeah, you bring up a great point. Soderbergh's ability to put us in the perspective of a character, to put us in the head of a character of one of his characters, and and then to use what we're seeing in the rest of the film as you know either that person imagining what's going on or reality, but their version of it, or you know his sort of interest in point of view is going to be a theme throughout his movies. It's a thing that that he uses in a lot of movies really well, so we can sort of look look for going forward. And there are times when he'll even in this movie where I'm still not entirely sure if what I'm seeing actually happened or if it's something that that one of them imagined. I'm sure that this is probably at least partially true of a lot of writers and a lot of characters that they write, but he said in interviews that the all four of these major characters are based on him at different points in his life or different relationships that he's had. And so it, it does feel personal because it does feel like he's sort of writing himself in four different ways, right? Yeah, it almost feels at times that now that you say that, I could see it having almost like this inside out type of <laughs> sense to it, you know, where you're looking inside someone's head and four different aspects of their personality are arguing with, with themselves and trying to, you know, figure out how to make the next move or something. Yeah, he does. he did mention that on the commentary too, is that there are sort of aspects of him in a way, but not that he was trying to necessarily work anything out with himself um, therapeutically or anything. Maybe that did occur throughout the process, but that is just, I just find like being an indie filmmaker, being an economical filmmaker, looking inside yourself, like looking at what you have can go a long way too. And I think that's cool. He crafted four characters out of his own personality. Yeah. And something that should be said too, is that it's not, none of this is He's, he's not being too cute with any of this, right? Like it's not, this isn't sort of twee independent filmmaking. This isn't overly self-conscious independent filmmaking. There are times maybe it'll be a little esoteric, uh, especially in later movies or a little experimental, but he's sort of deathly allergic, I think, to that sort of, am I going to get in trouble if I say that sort of Wes Anderson too cute for school thing? <laughs> um, no, that's fine. <laughs> I, I, which is, you know, that's totally fine. Just not not the, the taste of this filmmaker or this film. And I think, you know, there's a the template for that that he sets out in this movie that he carries over movie after movie. What I like about him is he knows he's making movies, right? Like he knows that right, this is a movie right. and that you're watching a movie and he will twist the medium at times. He'll go too far down the line right, in some movies right. maybe, but he finds interesting ways to use montage or this or that. And I think in this movie, it was a really cool idea to integrate videotape with film to get the two different styles there. You have, you know, the actual film and the actual video. So that to me is, a, you know, something you can only do in a movie, you know, and, and I think that he that adds something on a subconscious level, even if it is, is that like when you're watching those videotapes, like that's real reality. But and then the film is like movie reality. Mm -hmm. I, for me, that's what I picked up from it. And he also has the ability to blend those two realities in a way that you kind of forget that you're living in one for a moment. Like at the end of the movie, when Peter Gallagher is watching the tape of his wife, you know, confess to yes, yes. thinking about and then, you know, doing whatever she does. And like that scene is so long and so compelling and just it's personal in a way that a lot of the film isn't quite up to that point, or at least Anne isn't right. up to that point. Right. And then like they zoom out and you're like, oh shit, like he was watching that. <laughs> and it's just like, it's, it's like, it's more of a gut punch that you're thinking, I don't think you ever really forget that you're watching a movie, but you forget that Peter Gallagher right. is watching that right. movie with you. 
And then you see that, like, you're there with him in real time. You're like, oh, no, like, this is bad. And that's what's kind of amazing. Yeah, that's the narrative brilliance of this movie is the way things are revealed. And so you in that instance, earlier in the movie, we've seen Andy McDowell start her conversation or maybe she just says that she's going to start her conversation. He tells Graham to turn on, tells James Bader to turn on the video camera and she's finally going to talk to him about about sex, which is how he's able to get off. And then the movie cuts, right? We, we don't see that conversation. He And he, Soderbergh, holds that conversation until Peter Gallagher starts watching it. And then as he starts watching the videotape, as you say, we go back and we see in the room the movie camera's version of that, of that scene. And, but that's, that plays out throughout the whole movie, right? Like we hear about James Spader as we see him driving, but it's from her, from Andy McDowell telling us about him at the very beginning of the movie, right? So we're getting... In her voiceover, she's describing him. We don't know, is this what she thinks he looks like? Is this who he actually is? And then a few scenes later, she's. we learn that her husband is sleeping with her sister, sort of incidentally after the fact. Right? We see him having an affair. We're like, oh, her husband's cheating on her. And then it gets revealed, oh, and that's, that's her sister. And those sorts of uh, uh, the, the drip, drip, drip of information that the movie's giving us, the connections that just get tighter and tighter and tighter by the way the information is revealed is one of the real joys of Sex, Lies, and Videotape. And I feel like from the very beginning, it's a different kind of intimacy, but like we start off with her in the therapy session, and we're learning about her before we know who she is, really. And we know that like between the female character on the couch, which turns out to be basically the star, and then the therapist, and then James Spader driving to a gas station and shaving... Like, we have three different characters, and we're not really quite sure who they are or why we should care about them or if we should care about them. And it's, like, it doesn't hold your hand. Like, that's kind of like a cliche, but, like, they don't have, for instance, like, Peter Gallagher kissing Andy McDowell goodbye in the morning and then seeing them go off to work and therapy. Like, we're just in the middle of these scenes, and we don't know, we sort of gather who they are. And, like, one thing that's sort of maybe the most consistently used device in this movie is we have one character talking over a scene of another character doing something else. You know, she's talking about garbage, and we're watching James Spader do his thing. It's like, what is that saying about that? I feel like what we're seeing and what we're hearing are often two very different things. And I feel like that is for narrative purposes, but also maybe, like, even though you can watch these tapes, it's different from living the tapes. There's, there's something there. I definitely noticed that the like the overlap of audio bridges between shots and scenes and things. And I think for one thing, it just it's used to sort of disorient the viewer a little bit because these people's lives are sort of being disoriented by Graham's arrival in a lot of ways, and everyone's sort of set in their way. That's what I was started started getting from it. Like the movie itself. It's rough, but I like it. I think it feels like it's intentional, right? Like the stuff with the audio. When people are on the phone, it doesn't sound like they're on the phone. It sounds like they're in the room with them because when he recorded them, they literally were in the room with them and he used that audio. I mean, I think for me, it it goes back to like he's using the medium as it's intended. Like this is a film, not reality anyway. So like let's do these little tricks to screw with people's minds while they're watching it because that's what you can do with movies, right? You can make someone say, did I just see that? Was that... Did that happen? Like, is this supposed to be literal? What exactly is going on here? And I think it works here because it's not, he doesn't overdose you on it. 
it almost is used more to create like a state of mind or like a dream state or something like that. And and it helps balance out sort of the modernity of the look of the film a little bit. Like there's there's not that many like incredible shots. And I, and I feel like that's intentional. Like he doesn't want to distract you from the story too much or from there's not so much like of a plot really. But he doesn't want to distract you from these people. He wants you to be able to follow it, but he also wants to spice it up a little bit so that it's not boring here and there. And and those are nice little ways to do it where uh, it's not that distracting. It benefits the style of the film. Yeah, you get at something really important, which is that this movie, for me, is sort of profoundly about cinema itself. It's sort of a, a movie about the power of, of movies and not in the way of like, uh, you know, what's something that often wins an Oscar because it makes everybody feel good who makes movies like, oh, our movies matter. But the idea that movies are not true, but that they can be used to achieve truth. Right. So the movie that you're watching is not necessarily real at it, or it's not real, real at all. It's an illusion. But for any scene you're watching may or may not be something that's actually happening in the same way that the people talking to Graham, talking to James Spader on the videotapes about their sex lives. Maybe they're telling the truth. Maybe they're not. We don't know. You know, he doesn't know. We don't know. But it's it's sort of through the revelations that, that come in the course of the movie on those tapes that his sort of ultimate truth is laid bare is revealed the same for her right that 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 the you can't necessarily believe everything you see but through that medium you can come to whatever the capital t truth might be i think that i think soderbergh really believes that i think you know if he has a religion i think that it's probably movies i also read this one thing though where he talks about how video he's using as a metaphor for distance and i don't know if this is something that he mentions on the commentary but he said something like Video is a way of distancing ourselves from people and events. We tend to think that we can experience things because we watch them on tape. Graham, the James Spader character, needs the distance to feel free to react without anybody watching. And so I guess that's the same thing like with us, right? Like he's watching these tapes so he can react freely and we're watching this and we're watching him watch the tapes and we're able to sort of react freely too. Like it's this weird copy of a copy of a copy or like a video of a video of a video. And it's just, it's a comment on a comment on a comment kind of too. <laughs> Yes, and again, all without being too cute, right? Like all this stuff, you can watch this movie and just watch the movie. It can just be about these people and their lives and, oh, it's kind of titillating even though you don't actually see any skin or very, very little. And, I, you know, you can, you, can, you can take the movie at face value, but you can also start to unpack it. And then it suddenly it starts rewarding you in sort of all kinds of ways. My guess is that if this movie had not been as successful and heralded as it was, first at Sundance and then at Cannes and then in theaters across the country, that it probably would have been like it would have eventually developed a cult following right like a lot of movies that that are as i don't want to say deep that's not quite what i mean but as intricate and and as rewarding as this are often not successful when the you know they're very first released but but this this one just happened to be yeah i feel like this came at a very specific point in time it was almost like there was like a, a new renaissance going on in in independent film right or like a, a second coming like the, the new guard was at the door it feels you know like people were looking for new filmmakers and new styles or you know Soderbergh like you say he kind of comes out of nowhere he's you got no prior reputation or anything like that and and he'll you know in a year or two you'll get like Tarantino and Rodriguez and Smith I mean just like all these people coming through right like it just seems like he led that attack on on film <laughs> where because of of this like the success of this like it gave so much opportunity down the line especially during the 90s I mean the 90s just exploded with like you know Miramax and you know 
it feels like everyone was looking not only to make movies like this again, but to release them. Right. You know, there was like a, he created like an audience again for stuff like this. I feel like we could then bank on putting out a serious drama or a relationship drama or you know the days where Woody Allen would put out like his Bergman you know homages and stuff like I feel like you will get new directors doing that as well and the public embracing it a lot more you know especially at the time because this was right in the heart of I feel like blockbuster time right like the late 80s early 90s like it feel really felt like that's what was you know really popular so like on top of everything else for him to sort of blaze that trail as well it's just super impressive yeah this movie comes at this you're totally right this nexus of these three things kind of happening simultaneously yet the end of the 80s the end of this big sort of our first franchise era right where there's a lot of sequels there's a lot of big glossy shiny loud movies some of them good a lot of them really terrible but most of them very artificial even the good ones it's 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 less about intimate uh, personal relationships than it is about spectacle in some way and then you get Sundance which is which is in the where this movie debuted before it went to to Cannes and Sundance being a, a, a place that will incubate a lot of independent filmmakers and independent films sort of going forward. And then Miramax, right? The Weinsteins put the put it more than the budget of this movie into making prints and buying advertising for this movie. And they released this movie in 600 theaters in 89, which is unheard of. Like you don't release a movie this small in that many theaters. You started in New York and Los Angeles and a couple of screens and hope it does well. And maybe you'll break even someday. But they really went, they put, they put ads on TV for this movie. So as a result, people like, you know, I mean, my, I know my mom saw this movie when it came out, and uh, at least I'm pretty sure she did. Not soon afterwards, but but the, but, <laughs> but the, that's playing to people in Montana, right? Like it's playing, you know, in '89 in in theaters in Montana is a big deal, and so those three things are going to, you know, it's no it's no wonder, um, Mike, that you mentioned. You know Kevin Smith and Quentin Tarantino, who are, all, who are also going to be Miramax sort of finds, right? And and that's that's those this this is the movie that sort of all those three elements hit at the same time. It just so happens that it also is a really good movie. But it was a uh, you know the audiences were hungry for it. Uh, Sundance was coming along to sort of get those these movies noticed and bought. And places like Miramax were beginning to distribute them, as you say, to get them out to audiences. So one thing that I made note of, basically the only thing I took notes of in this movie was the camera work. And I'm not sure, like when I was looking at the director's trademarks on INDB, the only thing that really stood out in terms of the actual art of making movies is that he uses a lot of jump cuts, which I don't think we really got a lot of here. If any, maybe a few, there were a few that sort of like a little startling, but I don't know. But in terms of the camera work, there were a few different shots that I thought worked really well. There's the one tracking shot of her at the bar, which was kind of cool. Do you remember that one? But I think that's the most noticeable one. Or My favorite one might be when Cynthia is on tape sort of talking, like she begins talking about herself, and the camera just like slowly, like really, really slowly pushes in toward her. And between that and like the Cliff Martinez score, it's just like so creepy and intimate and personal. You almost feel like you're getting too close. Like, no, 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 like stop, stop, stop. I don't want to be this close to this woman spilling her entire... You know, the first time she ever touched a penis or the first time, it just, oh, I'm just like, it's, stop, please. Yeah, it really creates sort of that personal, like, invasion of personal space 
moment there, but she's letting you in, right? Like, she's letting you in. She wants you to be there, but it's also still uncomfortable because we're getting real close to this stranger. Uh, and that's a real good use of, like, film language there. Uh, I, 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 For me, I think the shot is, um, like, one of the best shots is he, he pulls a dolly zoom at one point on her, I think, when she, like, orgasms at one point. You know, it, it's like that famous shot of, like, Roy Schreider in Jaws when he sees the shark at the beach, like, the camera... It, what is it? it dollies out as it zooms in so it really creates like a crazy warped perspective that's a really cool shot and then and then there's a couple other sort of tracking shots like there's the one at dinner where i feel like that's sort of the most famous one yeah. i feel like that's talked about a lot they talk about Around the strawberries for a bit on um the commentary yeah as it as it's just sort of you know circling the dinner table while they're having their their conversation yeah, there are, there are a number of longer takes in this movie like that where they – well, actually, a number of those that you just talked about. Joey, the, the slow creep in on Cynthia as she's talking or they're around the dinner table stuff. And that's something that he likes to do in a lot of his movies is the duration of the shot can be very long. And it allows the actors to sort of control the momentum of the scene and the pacing. No wonder a lot of actors – want to work with him you know he's able to get just about anybody he wants and part of it is his his ability to get great performances out of them and the other part is that he is that he gives them room to to sort of demonstrate what they can do and i think he knows when he seems to know when to use the camera to sort of articulate something and when to use the camera to let the actors articulate it and i think this movie shows both those strengths yeah, it's funny because even when we get down the line to the Oceans movies, I noticed watching those, like, an entire scene will just be one shot, and it'll be like, you know, Clooney and Brad Pitt talking, but it, it'll it just be from, you know, it'll be like one lockdown shot, because nothing else really needs to happen except for information to come across. And at times like that, and especially in, in like, this movie, it creates a nice sense of sort of real time also with those long takes, and that always helps sort of craft a reality while you're watching a movie too. It's like, oh, we haven't cut for a while. And it's like, oh yeah, without an edit, you know, you're not condensing or expanding real time at all. So I think just, again, subconsciously, that's like just a little mental trick that uh, good filmmakers can pull at the right time to maximum effect. And there's also like a purpose to that here, right? Because James Spader, as the videographer of his own Twisted Desires, he's not cutting either. He's just letting the camera roll. So in that regard, we're sort of like him. The only time that he would ever cut is when like the two-hour tape runs out and, you know, that one woman who used three two-hour tapes or whatever, whatever crazy duration, you know, whatever sexual deviances she was talking about. I think it helps you get sucked into the movie more because especially, I mean, compared on the other end of the spectrum with like action movies where it's cut, some of them, the the worst ones are cut so fast you have a hard time of making out what's going on. Right. Here, it's the complete opposite on the spectrum. If, if you need to cut, cut, but like here, you just sort of get sucked into the room and you're just, it's it's almost, it's more like a play sort yes. of than a movie. Yes, and the camera is, is often moving in, the, in a slow way, like whether it's circling the table or moving in on Cynthia or just sort of, um, you know, at one point they're having lunch, right? James Spader and um, Andy McDowell and the camera's just moving slowly around them and there's a probing sense that the whole movie is searching for something, 
right? It's unsettled a little bit. It's trying to figure something out in the same way that we are and the same way that the characters are in the movie. It's all sort of working as a piece. It's funny that my memory is, I can't remember now if it's the commentary or if it's in uh, one of the Soderbergh interviews where the optical zoom, that shot that you were talking about where Cynthia's after her first sort of taping or her only taping with Graham and then she goes and she has sex with Peter Gallagher's character and she and you get that optical zoom shot that dolly zoom shot that he talked about being very self-conscious about that shot because it's the most self-conscious shot in the movie right it's the it's the shot that most sort of yells at you hey you're watching a movie <laughs> like this is not you know normally lends to reality and what he said was uh, in somewhere is that he you know every filmmaker is dying to do that shot and they have to get it out of the way in their first movie and then never use it again <laughs> his sort of description of uh, he just could not help himself in that moment he felt like that was the most important or the best place to use that shot as as she has come to her own truth in the and, and sort of getting Peter Gallagher out of her system too in that moment and, and I think that stuff, you know, he that's, I guess, what I'm trying to say is he motivates those things really well. When he's going to move the camera, there's a reason. When he's going to do a dolly zoom, there's a reason. If he's going to hold the shot for a long time, he has a narrative or thematic or character reason to do that. And that's part of why these films are as rich as they are. Which is kind of annoying for being a first-time director. Like, why are you so confident? Like, where did you? Because especially in the in the diary, like the, the pages that I read so far, it didn't seem like he'd done that much film work leading up. No. To this. He had a handful of shorts that mostly were unsuccessful. They were just sort of like imitating other directors that he liked. And then all of a sudden, he just like whips this out. It's like, where did this come from? Well, he had that one. He did the one Yes concert, right? Which which I find kind of interesting. Like Scorsese did that one movie the band the band yeah and he also edited and shot some of the film Woodstock so and you also get you know guys like Fincher coming from the music video world and things like that so I I thought that was kind of interesting that aside from the short some of his pre-film work was in the music industry and there's sort of like it seems like there's a brotherhood in a sense of a way like there's a lot of shifting between the music industry and the film industry as far as like directors and where you discover directors and stuff like that and so who knows if he would have you know if he didn't come out of the gate with sex lies who knows if he was would have done like a video for michael jackson or madonna or you know or, or i feel like no matter what he would have came through and gotten discovered some way and, and and been successful and still still found a way to make these movies and as a quick side note we will be doing that yes documentary in a couple movies we're sort of gonna pick up a little bit of speed first and then do like a little bit of a bonus so we are gonna cover that yeah you know it's sort of like i've always felt like soderbergh came out of the womb bilingual. You can speak English and film. And there are there are filmmakers who you know, you can think about other filmmakers whose debuts were as confident as this. That's the word I think, Joey, that you used. And, you know, the one mm-hmm. that comes to mind is Citizen Kane. You know, who he was 24, 25 when he made Citizen, uh, Orson Welles was when he when he wrote and directed Citizen Kane as his first film. And, you know, had been a very different kind of person than Soderbergh was. You know, he was a wealthy, basically orphan for a lot of his, lot of his youth and traveled the world and spoke a bunch of languages and was a painter and was an actor and was a, a theater director, very accomplished theater director and radio sort of pioneer. But, you know, and I'm not comparing this movie in any way to, to Citizen Kane. It has not had... Yes, that. you are. Okay, I'm a little bit. <laughs> uh, but it's obviously not in terms of its filmic influence in the... Like, movies look different after Citizen Kane than they did before Citizen Kane. That did not happen with this movie, 
But in terms of a film that was as confident and that remains as effective as it does so many years after it was made by a filmmaker who's in their mid-20s, who then goes on to make a bunch of other very accomplished movies, very few people speak film as distinctly and immediately as Soderbergh does. Scorsese is probably one of them. Fellini is probably one of them. Uh, Orson Welles was definitely one of them. But but there aren't there aren't a lot. There aren't a lot. We're seeing the birth of something here that feels like it's you know already well into its adulthood in terms of his talent. And I feel like what's kind of cool to bring it kind of to the present is that because it's so easy today to make a film, not necessarily get it distributed or financed or whatever, but you can just go out and make something. And because there are more movies now than really ever before, there are a lot of directors who can be birthed from the womb, as you said, and just hit the ground running with like a crazy debut feature. Like Robert Eggers, who did The Witch, that's his first yeah, movie. Right. And like, that's amazing as well. And there's a lot of these movies that I've seen like at Fantastic Fest, like it's their first or their second movie. And it's like, where did this come from? But I feel like if you grew up, especially people who are roughly my age, and I think that he's probably like, if you're about 30, you grew up really, if you wanted to, watching Soderbergh and watching Tarantino and watching these other guys who were able to do things that like really hadn't been done before and especially you know somebody else we might be doing wink wink down the road of Robert Rodriguez who like you can just go out and be and sort of like Soderbergh be the man of every hat and just go do everything on your movie and just get something made and for that you know, to grow up in a world where that's a possibility, it doesn't surprise me really that people are able to do that today. But for this to happen in 1989 is amazing. Yeah, right. Especially considering that he didn't shoot this all on the video, right? Like he actually, like this is shot on film. Like this is this went through the proper motions. Like this was made like a movie was made. Whereas like today, you're right. Like I could just go to B and H and get like three great cameras, right? Like that's the whole idea. It's like like every, like the equipment and the technology is so much more accessible today but you're right like he did it when it wasn't which makes it like makes me hate him all the much more right and while you guys were talking i was just kind of struggling to come up with another name and like to me someone like pt anderson right where like maybe hard eight wasn't like exactly you know that was his first film that maybe wasn't not amazing or anything but then boogie nights and everything else from there i feel like there's another guy who is sort of is really pushing the medium in his way and that's another thing like I feel like you can distinguish Soderbergh films from other people's films even though they're not extremely stylized or anything but there's just sort of like a feeling or uh, themes or something about them like a coolness at times that makes you say okay yeah I could totally see like this is a Soderbergh film and only that only he could really make the movies that he makes. Oh, one thing that he did note in the diary that is also on IMDb that might be just from the diary is that he was influenced by a couple different movies, Carnal Knowledge, Five Easy Pieces, and then one of Tobin's favorite films, or at least one that he recommends, I think, The Last Picture Show. Yes. And I think that the original <laughs> plan was to shoot this movie in black and white. <laughs> <laughs> I think, and then, like, he was bringing it to different producers, and, like, some of them liked the idea, some of them didn't like the idea. It's interesting, like, I think it works in color. I feel like if it was in black and white, it might be too artsy. Yes, yes, yes. I agree. 
it'll be a few years before he gets to fully play out his black and white dreams. There are other movies coming up that he'll want to do in black and white, but won't get to. And I think more often than not, that's, you know, producers, in my opinion, are wise to, <laughs> to make people do that. I, but I can totally see the last picture show connection. I don't know if you guys have seen that movie, but it's, it sort of beautifully plays with some of the same themes here and, and it and creates a real sort of intimate story that is, about sex but not about sex in a lot of ways in the same ways in some of the same ways that this movie is that's interesting i'd not i'd not ever heard that before but that that makes a lot of sense to me i, I could sort of see like a bogdanovich connection here yeah right yeah totally. that's interesting and i like that we're learning things already do you guys know the other names that were possibilities for this movie I don't, but this is a brilliant name to market your film. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, sex sex is in the title, lies is in the title. Like, I just feel like that might have been half the reason that this was seen so <laughs> yeah, much is totally, because people totally. might have been expecting something a bit saucier than what they got. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's evocative. Like, there's, you know, it's extremely voyeuristic and there's a lot of taboos and social sexual mores being broken in this film and stuff, but it's no porno or anything. Right, like, right. I don't think there's any full front. There's no nudity. There's nothing. I think the most, like, we may see Spader flash a little, like, nude side, but, like, <laughs> that's kind of it. Evocative is such a good word. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. So the other names that he gave on a list to producers, I think that he first got hooked up with when he went out to Hollywood, and looking at these now, like none of them are good, except for the one that it actually became, Sex Lives Videotape. And then the other one that's interesting, but I don't think it would work as a movie, he wanted the movie to be called 4602, which is the length of the tape that Anne films. Oh, wow. And so, I, I mean, that's a cool name, but... People were worried that with that yeah. in the name, they wouldn't know what the hell it was. Thought that that was yeah. It was going to be like a 46 minute <laughs> scene of just like that. And so he didn't do that. But the other names were Retinal Retention, yeah. which sounds like a 1980s, like direct to like VHS, low grade sci fi. <laughs> yeah. Charged Coupling Device. Oh, no. Oh, God. <laughs> mode Visual with a colon between Mode Visual. Oh, God. And hidden agendas, which is just that seems like a skin and max yes, or like yes. a late night, like a yes. like none of those names are good. Oh man! But yeah, and apparently in the diary, like in the thing that he's writing, like you know, as he's leading up to the film, he writes sex lies and videotape, and then as he's writing it, he's like actually looks better lowercase, and like just like as he's writing that, decided that it was gonna be stylized in lowercase, yeah. which is cool to see that happen kind of in yeah, real yeah, time, yeah. you know, thirty thirty years later. <laughs> Yeah, there is no doubt that the title, if it had not been Sex Lives Videotape before they made the movie, Harvey Weinstein might very likely have changed it to that. I mean, it, it really it really is. Uh, it does exactly what, what you need it to do. Yeah, and it, it gets you hooked. I mean, it's... I guess I mean it's a provocative movie for the most part, but there's I mean there's there's not that many lies. Like we just get to the lie in the middle of the movie. It's like oh there's the titular lies when she questions him about sleeping with her sister. Like there's not like it's it's more like we're gonna hide truths from you, but people aren't really like out and out lying to each other in this movie to the point where like James Peter is like literally like an open book. Like oh yeah like I know that your husband is sleeping with your sister. Like he she told me like I'm not gonna hide anything from you. But it's it's a great title. She's lying to herself. Andy McDowell's lying to herself about her relationship and about her her own sort of sexual interests and 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 james spader it, it was a claims to have been a pathological liar or actually still is right he says i still am where you, you never get oh it's like alcoholism you never get over it you just sort of cope and so and he i think he's lying to himself too i i think you know the, we can talk about what what he does at the end by by smashing those videotapes and sort of seemingly giving up his proclivities 
for her or because of her or something. But but there's a there's I think the movie is sort of laced with uh, people lying to each other, if not or to themselves, if not if not to each other. The movie's not about sort of you're right. It's not about unmasking some giant lie. But I think that there that that there's there are a lot of there are a lot of at least minor lies uh, going on throughout the course of the movie, or at least self deception. One of my favorite parts at the end is when Graham is talking about the girl before, right? Like he left because he was in love with a girl, and he's like, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to change and I'm going to be different and the person that she's going to want and you know I'm 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 a new man and all this stuff and and uh Andy McDowell's like yeah you changed but like look what you've changed into like you're a monster <laughs> you know like you think that you have cured yourself somehow but you've almost like twisted yourself even further into a mess where like not only are you impotent but you are like you know not preying on these women but like Definitely using their deepest secrets to get yourself off is a very shady thing to be doing, I feel. Like, even if they are giving consent and stuff, like, it's just to get that, to have that specific a fetish going on. It's like, no, you, that, that's not like a cure. I do feel by the end, you come to realize, like, he does not have his shit together as well as I thought he did. Or, or, or as well as he thought he did. Yes. For her sister, too. Like, she definitely stops lying to herself about needing to compete with Andy McDowell and all this stuff and like and definitely feel like she's in a better place toward the end and and the other guy definitely like his career he, his life is ruined the yeah. last one yeah well, it seems like, you know, everybody gets a happy ending, except for Peter Gallagher, who gets, uh, you know, we don't see it, but he gets fired, probably. Like, hey, stop canceling meetings to go, you know, cheat on your wife with your sister-in-law. But yeah, and then, you know, Anne goes and, I guess, starts dating or whatever, Graham, right? And then she makes up with her sister, and everything's good, for the most part. Yeah, I think maybe there's some, I think the movie leaves it open a little bit for, like, it's not, it's not a... How do you say it? It's not like a skipping off into the sunset happy ending. It's, it feels more like a sort of a uh, some weight's been lifted from our shoulders, and now let's sort of figure out what comes next. They feel more at peace for sure at the end of the movie. I, I've always felt a little uncomfortable with the ending, the very last shot of Graham and Anne of Andy McDowell. And oh, it Spader. looks like rain, or, or it's about to start yeah, raining. Yeah, I don't know. That's the part that me feels a little self conscious. Like I don't quite know how to end the movie, so I'm going to end it on this sort of deliberately ambiguous note, but also feels like the end of a romantic comedy in some way. And I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I don't. I don't love necessarily that last bit. However, it has always stuck in my head, and I, I like a lot of this movie, and I. I um, so maybe something in it works, but I yeah that that's that that's been more difficult for me to sort of swallow. I almost wish he went full graduate there at the end. Yeah, so, yeah, you yeah. know, like that. I got the sense that they were going to try and go on together right. in some form, but I would have liked it to be um, a little more ambiguous, or at least have an extra look on their face, or one of them saying like, right. maybe this wasn't such a great idea after all, or like, what did I get myself into? <laughs> thing like almost like the movie ends like a frame or two too soon, right. or something like that. Um, otherwise, don't even have that shot. You can. I almost feel like you can end it. Like there was a resolution. There's enough resolution between the characters that you don't need to see her end up with Graham or feel like they're going to be an item. You just feel like they're not where they need to be, but they're definitely in a better place because of each other. And that's really all that I need. Really, I don't need them to be together forever because they helped them. They've helped each other through this part. Yeah. Where does this movie take place? Do we have a setting? Do we have a city? It was filmed in Baton Rouge. Yeah, I think it's actually supposed to take place there too, but I'm not positive. I don't. I, I get the sense that that 
doesn't really make much of a difference, but pretty sure it takes place where it was filmed. Okay. I mean, I guess it makes a difference in the sense that if this was New York City or a major city or something like that, it would be portrayed at much faster pace. But the fact that it is sort of like a lazy southern town or something that not very much is going on here in the first place, that it would be easy for Andy McDowell to sort of get trapped into a housewife role and for her husband to want to stray and for there not to be a lot of people to know so that you can only mess around with people you know the in roger ebert's review for whatever that's worth he says baton rouge is where the takes place all right so he and he's probably working from like a press release from right from press a press <laughs> kit we, we can believe him i think and sure. is that where Soderbergh's from? Spent time, possibly? I think he mentioned in, in the commentary, like, the actual bar they shot in, like, he has spent a lot of time drinking <laughs> in that bar and thinking about making the movie and everything. So I thought that was kind of cool, too. It's like, kind of shot it where, you know, he lived. It's like, just use your own backyard. <laughs> like, just like another super economical filmmaking method there. Yeah, totally. Another another indie staple to, to sort of take... <laughs> literally shoot in the places that you, your know, friends' houses and stuff like that. This film was nominated for 21 awards and won 14 of them. It was nominated at the Academy Awards for Best Original Screenplay, nominated but did not win. What won? Dead Poet Society. Oh, okay. All right, my captain, my okay. captain. Also nominated yeah. were Crimes and Misdemeanors, Do the Right Thing, and When Harry Met Sally. Oh, God, what a good year. Yeah, I guess you know, and I guess this is since this had at that point had won at you know awards at Sundance and awards at can't like it can't win everything. So okay, <laughs> but it is kind of funny that it was nominated with When Harry Met Sally, which is also kind of considered a quintessential relationship film of the times, yeah. right? And it's yeah. like the complete yeah. opposite of this one in a lot of ways. <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll have what she's having. <laughs> <laughs> it was nominated for Golden Globes for Best Actress. For Andy McDowell, Best Supporting Actress for Laura San Giacomo and Best Screenplay. Did not win any of those. It won Best Actor at Con. It won the Fipresci Prize. I don't know what that is. And it won the Palme d'Or at Con. Won four awards at the Independent Spirit Awards. Lots and lots of praise for a guy's first movie. And I'm glad that he, yeah. you know, I'm glad that he went on to do great things that we are going to be talking about as opposed to like letting this all go to his head and making some like terrible, terrible movie that flopped and he was never able to work again. This is actually, again, part of the one of the benefits of coming up at this time. And he talked about this too. Like this was at a time when you could make a movie that got some traction, in his case, a lot of traction, and then make a few flops and then still be able to make more movies. And you don't get as many chances. You don't get as many bites at the apple anymore. It just, it just doesn't doesn't happen if your movies aren't sort of financially successful. And so that is kind of going to happen to him. And I feel like a Soderbergh today would have a hard time making the same string of movies that he made at the, at the time and, and sort of surviving to to make out of sight and Aaron Brockovich and traffic and win a bunch of Oscars. I'm really kind of interested to see because he's ne- this next batch of movies that we're going to watch until we get to out of sight. I don't think I've seen and a lot of them are criterion and I wonder if they're criterion because they're actually great movies or if they're like hey these are Soderbergh's early movies like let's save them and like restore them. Like, I'm curious to see if they're actually good or if they're yeah. like sort of hey we're going to give this guy the, the dude that he has earned for other movies and just sort of, you know, bring these early films to the masses. 
Yeah, I'd be curious to see what you think, not having seen them. In my opinion, the ones that Criterion has done, the actual, actual release for, it's they're not pity releases. And the ones they haven't done maybe would be if they did them. I mean, the underneath shows up as an extra on one of the other discs. So I don't know if that really, that really counts, right? So I think that they're, I, I'm, I'm not imagining they're going to go back to the well for Kafka here, you know? But who knows? You may feel differently. I feel like this movie gave him a lot of goodwill like he you know he got a lot of credit in the movie bank from this movie uh, yeah, alone yeah. you know like after kafka like i've seen it he'll get to black and white <laughs> right away because it's <laughs> black and white he'll get that's his true, wish that's true that's true i remember enjoying it i mean based on the works of kafka and everything but not mainstream accessible like you would not the follow-up you would expect from the guy who made this movie you know like he very quickly veers off into an experimental direction with that film. Which is cool. Yeah, which is fine. And I think King of the Hill and Underneath are a little more back in this direction of traditional, let's say, uh, before he goes completely nuts with Schizopolis again. (laughs) But but yeah, I do feel like because this movie gave him so much credit, he was able to sort of make a couple mistakes here and there, where Mm -hmm. definitely Mm -hmm. nowadays, like, you do not get a second and third chance like you really need to follow yourself up really strong and the next movie that we are doing is Kafka which is not available on DVD in the US you, it's on YouTube in its entirety so if you want to follow along play along at home it's available for and I, just like, I don't know who uploaded but somebody uploaded like it's not like a paid rental it's just some guy uploaded the 90 minute movie to YouTube so go check it that out it could be Soderbergh <laughs> could be I would not be surprised he would do he would do stuff like that did you guys ever watch his this may be getting ahead of ourselves but he did a black and white he, I don't think he recut it I think he just made a black and white Raiders of the Lost Ark silent Raiders of the what? Lost Ark with some yeah on his website. He, didn't he score it to like Trent Reznor music or something? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. As, as an homage, he says it makes you watch the shots, which in his mind were just brilliant. These, the the um, Spielberg shots in that movie. And then and then he did um, like an hour cut. He called it a butcher's cut, I think, or something of Heaven's Gate, the notorious flop that runs three hours long at, a, at, a, at its usual length. Yeah, he cut an hour version. Eventually, they made him take it down. But he took the film as it was and, and put it on his website at an hour, you know, cut, cut it down to an hour, which was great. It was really good. So I would not be surprised if... If he had um, uh, released Kafka, he's talked in interviews about wanting to, in recent interviews, about maybe going back and recutting Kafka with what they have. So who knows? We, we may get a we may get a criterion of Kafka after all. He's super interesting. Like if you go to his website, like he lists every movie and book that he watches and reads every year and stuff. So you can go like check out his lists of you know, media that he has consumed and short stories and things like that. I remember I followed him on Twitter for a while, but it got crazy because he was releasing a book over Twitter. So like yeah. every tweet was like a sentence in this book. And I was just like, this is insane. Oh, I cannot boy. follow him right now on Twitter. <laughs> but I mean, always innovative, trying to push different art forms and mediums, yeah. you know, as far as they'll go and not afraid to like fail either at it right like it's it's worth trying everything seems to be worth trying well when you're given second chances like he was why not try like it's, it's cool to try yeah I think that's all I have to say about this. I'm really curious if later episodes are going to be longer or shorter, because we covered a lot of him on this one. And I wonder, like, we're not going to necessarily retread that. So this might be a very experimental, like, who knows how long any (laughs) of these podcasts are going to be. So I hope you enjoyed this one. But anything else to say about Sex, Lies, and Videotape? 
Only one thing, which is there's a scene partway through this movie where Peter Gallagher surprises Laura San Giacomo. He's lying in her bed. She's coming home to have an affair, and he's oh, and he's got boy. a potted plant yep. over mm-hmm. his genitals. Yeah. Don't try this at home. <laughs> Wait, did, is there is there a war story here? All I'm gonna say is, you watch this movie in high school, and you're like, oh, I I I wonder how much of this stuff works. And I'm just saying, don't try this at home. That's not even, it doesn't even like seem sexy. Like I don't understand why. But it there's existed. like a whole plant fertility thing theme running through this movie. You know, people are giving each other little plants as gifts, and plants yeah. are. He's uh, always being bringing toyed her with. a plant. Yeah. And, yeah. So there's sort of like a little theme running through. But that was to me that was over. That that just screamed like he doesn't. He's not a romantic. Like he's he doesn't know what he's doing exactly. Yes, and in high school I was not able to read the irony of that scene. I think. <laughs> You were too busy watching Keanu movies. <laughs> yes, yes, I was, yeah. Oh, God. The entire anyway. movie, I, I was trying to figure out who Laura San Giacomo looks like, because I looked at her IMDb, and I don't really think I know her from anything. She looks, and I don't know, because I'm not good with this, but I feel like she looks like Betsy Brant from Breaking Bad, sort of. Hmm. I don't know if that's right or not, but that's the, that's the closest I got to who she reminds me of. Because she looks like she's somebody that I've seen in a bunch of stuff, but I haven't seen anything she's done, really, I don't think. She always kind of reminded me of Linda Florentino, who I knew most yeah. from Dogma. You know, like, they they have sort of, like, a similar vibe going on, except except I feel like she's a little less, like, off-putting. <laughs> I always get, like, the other girl, though, always seems, like, a little meaner. But I don't know. I, I, again, like, I only knew her from The Stand, and then I never watched Just Shoot Me or anything, but I feel like she's really good in this. I feel like everyone's really good in this. She will always be, to me, Julia Roberts' best friend in Pretty Woman, the other prostitute in Pretty Woman. That's She's just in my brain as, as I think her name was Kit or something. And it's hard for me to see her and not think about that, even watching this movie. And we'll get plenty of Julia Roberts to come, at least four movies with her in it, if not more. We have lots of Julia Roberts to come. Uh, Mike, any last thoughts about Sex Lies? No, not necessarily. No, I really enjoyed it watching it, though, this time. Uh, I feel like it's a pretty strong recommend. Like, I feel like people should definitely watch it. If, if they're interested in this, then definitely check out the rest of his stuff. The rest of his stuff isn't, isn't a lot. We'll get to it, but I don't feel like he comes back to this territory all that much. So uh, that's what else is kind of cool about him. He kind of moves on from, you know, like he'll do three Oceans movies, but I don't feel like the rest of his stuff is all very different from itself. So yeah, definitely check this one out. That's cool. I want to give you the impossible task. We've recorded far too much for this to be possible, but I want you to edit this podcast down to be 46 minutes and two seconds long. (laughs) That's what we should have aimed for. So, I mean, if you need to cut me out every time that I speak to make that happen, just go for it. It can be a podcast between you and Tobin. Make it 4602. (laughs) I'll do my best. So for all things Cinemakers and all the other shows on our network, you can go to cageclub.me or facebook.com slash cageclub. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Tobin Adamson. And that's so exciting. We'll see you next time on Cinemakers. Cinemakers.